There are no protections anymore. Yeah, you know, there was for a while some ransomware actors were like, no, we won't go after hospitals or we won't do this or we won't do that. Those protections all seem to have flown out the window and they'll go after anything and anyone that will make them money. It doesn't matter how small they are or how big they are. You know, I mean, we've seen ransomware actors go after food banks. Like you're not going to get a ransom from a food bank. Don't do that. This is Lock and Code, a Malwarebytes podcast. I'm your host, David Reese. Our main story today is about intimidation. In July, the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, the federal government agency tasked with protecting investors from fraud, insider trading, and market manipulation, agreed that some new rules were in order for public companies in the United States. Starting in mid-December, companies that experience, quote, material cybersecurity incidents, end quote, will be required to disclose those incidents to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission, generally within four days of learning not necessarily about the incident, but after determining that the incident was, quote, material. Now, I understand that it is hard to care about the bureaucracy entangled in that sentence, but the gist of the new rules is that cybersecurity incidents like network breaches, ransomware attacks, or data theft are important enough that companies should report them with a bit more regularity. The Securities and Exchange Commission said as much in a public statement at the time from their chair, Gary Gensler, quote, whether a company loses a factory in a fire or millions of files in a cybersecurity incident, it may be material to investors. Currently, many public companies provide cybersecurity disclosure to investors. I think companies and investors alike, however, would benefit if this disclosure were made in a more consistent, comparable, and decision-useful way. Through helping to ensure that companies disclose material cybersecurity information, today's rules will benefit investors, companies, and the markets connecting them, end quote. And all of this is interesting, but didn't I say that today's episode is about intimidation? I did. And that's because at least one cybercrime group thought these new rules could be a lever for extortion. Last month, the ransomware group Alpha V, which also goes by the name Black Cat, sent a notice to the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission that a company called Meridian Link had failed to notify the government about a breach. But how did Alpha V know about this breach? Well, they claim to have done it. That is how. Now, it is important here to mention that Meridian Link confirmed a cybersecurity incident, but they denied the severity of the incident. According to a Meridian Link spokesperson, quote, based on our investigation to date, we have identified no evidence of unauthorized access to our production platforms, and the incident has caused minimal business interruption. If we determine that any consumer personal information was involved in this incident, we will provide notifications as required by law, end quote. That distinction about the severity of the incident is important because, remember, the SEC's new rules don't require disclosure after 
any incident. They only require disclosure after a company finds that an incident was material, which is a little vague, and, and we will get to that. But also, let's call out some um, regulatory clumsiness on Alpha V's part, because um, the, the rules aren't in effect yet. <laughs> and so the whole attention-grabbing headline of ransomware group files SEC complaint deserves more scrutiny. Today, to help us understand why Alpha V would take this action, what they're trying to accomplish in potentially intimidating future victims, whether this could have any impact on other ransomware gang tactics, and how to pronounce Alpha V, which is actually spelled A-L-P-H-V. I'm trying my best here, folks. We're speaking again with Alan Liska, Intelligence Analyst at Recorded Future. Alan, Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. I love your show and I uh, love being here. Thank you so much. We are so excited to have you back. When we last spoke, we spoke about Franken ransomware. We spoke about all things ransomware and uh, we're coming back to talk about ransomware. If you wanted to not be typecast, I'm sorry. This is what you are doing from now on. <laughs> this is all we can talk about. Well, you know, it's funny. I think I told you in the last time I spent the first part of my career researching like DNS and NTP protocols and nobody ever wanted to talk to me. And I just happened to stumble <laughs> into this and now everybody wants to be my friend. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are among those people, and we want to talk today again about ransomware, about this SEC complaint that got a lot of news coverage. But my first question, because I have tried to understand this from many angles, and I keep coming up a bit short. My first question is, why? Why would Alpha V file this SEC complaint against Meridian Link? It's interesting. We've seen these kind of reports from ransomware groups before. We've seen them threaten to report companies for GDPR violations. Uh, we've seen them threaten to report directly to the stock exchange for these kind of attacks. So it's not a tactic that they use often, but it is a tactic that they will sometimes use. And, and the idea is it's another form of coercion. So ultimately, ransomware actors want to get paid and they're going to do whatever they think will help them get paid. And this is one of those tactics that they use. We're going to rat you out to the authorities because you're not doing what you're doing. That's going to cause you to have more fines, etc. But I also kind of wonder if such a thing would ever work, because in my view, if I was hit by ransomware and I was trying to come to the decision of do we pay or not, let's say I'm, I'm running a business and I'm racked with that question of, are we going to do it? Like, are we going to pay? I hear all the advice is not pay, but sometimes you have to. And that totally makes sense. But as soon as the eyes of like the English speaking world are on you, I would definitely not pay. It reminds me a lot of the attacks against Caesars Entertainment and also MGM two months ago, a month ago. And we all learned that the company that was visibly hit, MGM, their casinos were shut down. The cards to enter doors didn't work. The online booking system didn't function. People couldn't make reservations. That company did not pay a ransom. But Caesars, which was hit like a week before, quietly 
did pay a ransom. And so my immediate conclusion from that is, well, if you get exposure, you don't pay. But maybe that's not the takeaway here. And so I wanted to ask that to you. Would that even work? I just don't see it working. I think it depends on the situation. So take Colonial Pipeline. Colonial Pipeline paid a ransom and they got more exposure than just about any other victim <laughs> in, uh, in in the history of ransomware. Um, <laughs> and so I think a lot of it depends on your ability to recover and what you think you're going to gain. I mean, for just like for the ransomware actors where they treat this as a business with the exception of some of the ransomware actors that are also, you know, nation state actors. It's a business decision as to whether or not we're going to pay and what the benefits are. So if you look at the SEC filing that Caesars did, they even indicated in their SEC filing that they paid because they didn't want customer data exposed. Now, they also included the caveat we can't guarantee that they actually deleted the data because we all know that ransomware actors are liars, but we didn't want the, the, our customer data published on their extortion site. So that's basically what they paid to do. What the ransomware actors do with the data later, that's out of anyone's hands. I also am curious whether the SEC would really come down on a company for this kind of activity, right? The rules written by the SEC are so, there's a lot of leeway baked into them. As I was saying at the start of the show, it's not just four days from an attack occurring, it's four days from a company determining whether an attack was, quote, material. And there's like a lot of vagueness in that, and I think it's for a reason. I think it's because the SEC doesn't necessarily want to punish companies for this. They want to provide an on-ramp. And so it feels to me like an empty threat. And it's fun to have a conversation where we can look at like one of the worst ransomware and cyber criminal groups out there operating today. And I've only been in this field for five or six years. I can just go, mm, didn't hit the mark for me. You know, <laughs> it just feels so preposterous to even have the conversation. But at the same time, I don't see the SEC doing anything about this. I don't I think they will understand. They'll go like, yeah, okay, you know, it sucks that it happened. It's unfortunate. Well, we're not going to fine you millions of dollars. You're absolutely right. Regulatory agencies as a general rule haven't been receptive to criminals outing their victims and then, you know, charging them or fining them for that outing. It's just not something that a regulatory body is going to want to do. One, they don't want the blowback. You know, if, if you are yes. finding a company because the criminals turned them in and you're not doing something about the criminals, then you're, you're going to get an abhorrent amount of bad press. But in general, the criminals aren't the equals of the regulatory agency, despite the fact that they may think they are. I also wanted to ask whether Alpha V, also, how do you pronounce that in your mind? Just a really quick side. Do you say Alpha V? Do you say Alpha V? I say Alpha V because there's no A in there. So I just do Alpha yeah. V. But I think the reason everybody calls them Black Cat is because Alpha V is a stupid name and hard to pronounce. <laughs> <laughs> so so we're switching to black hat. I'm yeah. switching to black hat midway through this. But go. do we think that there's another reason that Alpha V slash Black Cat would do this potentially also for scaring future victims? Is that maybe in the calculus? Yeah. So 
anything they're doing, you're doing it for one of two reasons when you're a ransomware actor. You think you're going to be able to coerce money out of the victims. In this case, it sounded like, no, there was almost no chance they were going to get paid. You're doing it to get attention to yourself, which the ransomware actors love this. And this brought a whole lot of attention to them and their capability, which attracts new affiliates. But also, yes, it serves as a warning to other potential victims. These are the things that we're willing to do if you don't pay us. You know, sort of another example of that is Lockbit, who has taken to publishing the negotiation chats for victims that refuse to pay. So they will make all of that readily available to anybody as an attempt to embarrass a company that didn't pay, but also serve as a warning for the next victim that, hey, everything that you share in this chat, we're going to share with the world. I wanted to go back to something that you had also said right earlier that these types of threats are not necessarily new. We've seen cybercriminal gangs make similar threats, um, you know, reporting under like GDPR and other regulatory regimes. I just wanted to ask, what is the history of this type of threat? It's not done often because it's not an effective tactic, which you know I think you've you've hit on correctly here. But it is something where they've made it known that they will do that, that they will do whatever they think it's going to take in order to get you to pay. So if it's GDPR, if it's CCP, the California Consumer Protection Act, whatever it is that they think they can file and report on you or threaten to report on you, they will do that. And I think this goes back to probably 2019, 2020. I may be wrong on this, but I think Revil is the first that threatened to do this. The Revil Ransomware Group, another one that was mm-hmm. difficult to pronounce, <laughs> although not as uh, not as difficult as Soda Nikibi, which was the other name they went by. So, um, and, and even then, there was some debate because it's R E V I L. So some people pronounced it R Evil. Yep. I always called it Revil, and I know they preferred R Evil, but they're the bad guys, so they don't get to decide how I'm going to pronounce their name. Yeah, might as, uh, I'm calling them Revel, you right. know, from this point. <laughs> Revel works as well, right. Um, anything but what they want to be called. Um, exactly. It's not a long, long history, but it's a long history within the realm of modern ransomware attacks that these tactics have tried and they don't seem to be successful, but it's still thrown up there as these are the kind of things we're going to do. And when you're looking at the checklist of the ways that they're going to try to get your attention and get you to pay. That's just another check in the checkbox. I suppose there's also something I hadn't considered here where even if they don't get the money that they want, there's still probably a huge threat to having your company be attached with this single event in the news probably forever. I had never heard of this company before. And now... For the rest of my days, I'm going to tie them to this attack. And I'm sure companies hate that. I'm sure companies say, you know, if we could just be, if if every news story written about us, right, didn't have in the first sentence, you know, oh, the company that faced the extortion threat with the SEC, that would be nice. You know, that would be nice to not have that happen. So perhaps there is a public exposure threat that I'm not 
giving the credit it deserves. I don't know. I don't want to say giving the credit deserves to ransomware gangs, but there is a fear there is all I think I'm trying to come to. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, again, going back to it, if I say Colonial Pipeline, it doesn't matter what they do for the next 20 years. (laughs) We're all going to know them as the company that got hit by ransomware over a holiday weekend, right? You know, same thing. You look at TravelX in the UK, one of the most devastating ransomware attacks ever. They were one of the first big companies that, you know, had to go into receivership in part because of the ransomware attack. That's going to be forever associated with them. So I don't know that this rises to that level, but it will in certain circles, yeah, so if I go ask my mom about them 10 years from now or five years from now, she's probably not going to remember. But in the financial sector, it will absolutely be remembered. I wanted to shift here to the rules themselves. They feel like a step in the right direction where we have heard for years efforts to mandate reporting of cybersecurity attacks um, that cybersecurity attacks that go unreported or unknown, they don't give us the complete picture of what we're dealing with. And that reporting an attack is, it could be seen as a very good thing to just create this data set that we know is out there that we don't have the full picture of. And again, these SEC rules feel like a first step into maybe getting there somewhere down the line with actual legislation or or something else, like a coalition just agrees we're all going to do it. And so I wanted to ask more broadly, what do you think the impact of these SEC rules will be going into the future? I think they're probably imperfect to start with, but they're a good start. And exactly for what you've, you've said, we can't tell you how many ransomware attacks have happened this year. I can make a guess based on data that recorded futures collected from incidents that we've assisted with or publicly reported incidents. You can make a guess based on data collected from Malwarebytes. Mandiant can make a guess, etc. So we all have guesses, but we don't actually know how bad ransomware attacks are. And there are some reporting requirements that, that are government mandated, but that data stays within the government. So if you're a public sector entity in North Carolina and you get hit with a ransomware attack, you report that to the North Carolina state government. Good luck getting that information out of the North Carolina state government. So the North Carolina (laughs) state government knows nobody else does. This is good because it not only requires reporting, but it also democratizes access. So that anybody who wants to know, hey, how many publicly traded companies have been hit with ransomware attacks in 2024 will be able to pull SEC filings. And while they'll probably have to work through some creative language, you'll generally be able to determine, okay, this was a ransomware attack. I think that is broadly a good thing. HHS does that really well with requiring reporting for healthcare providers. And it's not perfect, but you can get a better understanding of what the number of ransomware attacks, again, against healthcare providers. Again, still having to work through creative language choices, but once you kind of decipher that, you're able to say, okay, these look like these were the number of ransomware attacks that had to be reported by healthcare providers in the U.S. What is the consequence that we face because we don't have this data? 
We are relying on the ransomware actors to tell us about the number of attacks. So based on what's published on data extortion sites or data leak sites, that's where we get our numbers from. So we're relying on the criminals to tell us how many people they've attacked. And I don't like that. I want that number to come from something other than the criminals, again, in part because criminals lie. Lockbit is famous for this, where they will publish random organization names that weren't actually victims. We saw this with Klopp and the MoveIt breach, where it didn't matter who the actual victim was. If you had a big enough name, you became a victim on the site. And so relying on the criminals to tell us how many people they hit doesn't seem like the right way to go about it. And how does it help us to have this data in a concrete way? Like, what does it help us like as an industry do, or even as a government that's like trying to create rules to protect folks. I'm just, I want to hammer on this because we deal with the exact same thing at Mauerbytes, where like you said, we have to guess and we guess by looking at extortion sites, you know, and that is a fraction of what we can assume is really happening out there. So I also want to kind of drill down then on like, what could we get with good data? What does good data allow us to do? So I'll use healthcare as a great example. Because we are able to pull data, well, my interns are able to pull data from the (laughs) HHS website, we actually have probably not the full database, but we have a pretty good idea of the number of ransomware attacks for healthcare in 2023. And we're a lot more confident in that number than we are in the number of, say, manufacturers that got hit with mm-hmm. ransomware attacks. So for example, worldwide, we're sitting at about 316 so far for 2023. Compare that to, again, pulling from the same data sets, 245 in 2022. So we're almost 100 more ransomware attacks and there's still a month left in the year. And so having those numbers tell us that, yeah, you know what? Ransomware attacks against healthcare providers are up significantly. And we can also look at which groups are doing it, if that data is available to us, where they're happening, which geography, and be able to say, look, these are the kind of things that we need to look at with healthcare. So for example, if we saw, and we're not, but if we saw a lot of ransomware attacks against healthcare providers that were initiated by scattered spider, we'd be able to say, hey, you know, healthcare providers really need to invest more in social engineering preventions. But if we see more from Lockbit, okay, well then there's there's these methods that their initial access brokers like to use. Or if we see more suddenly from Lockbit, then it may be, oh, hey, because we know that some of the Lockbit affiliates are, are going after and targeting Citrix bleed. Maybe we need to send out a warning to healthcare providers to make sure they're patching Citrix bleed because you know one of the Lockbit affiliates is hitting those heavily. So knowing this allows us to see what the trends are, what the groups are what sizes and what the geography looks like and focus where we're helping them or trying to help them improve. And when I say we, I mean the collective we, not just Recorded Future, but hmm. you know the collective security community and the government agencies that we work with to try and improve healthcare security. Yeah. So I used to volunteer at a suicide prevention hotline 
and we collected a small amount of data, but we did collect data on essentially, you know, number of calls and uh, who we were speaking to, which they volunteer, right? There's a lot of privacy baked into this process. But I always dreamt of this world where, you know, if we get two calls from, let's say, like a high school, we can then reach out to that high school and say, hey, something's going on in your classes. And maybe it's a good time to address that. And it feels the same way. Hey, something's going on here. Let's put out notices. Let's reach out to these companies. Let's reach out to healthcare. Let's make sure that the methods that are being used by certain ransomware groups are being most protected against. You know, we've seen the ways they act. We've seen the the ways they carry out attacks. Let's work on that. This is what you can do when you act on comprehensive data, which is very important. I wanted to shifted a bit to something that you mentioned here in this hypothetical, like, hey, if we're seeing this, we could do that. And you said, but we're not seeing that. And I think that's a great transition into what are you seeing? There were three attacks that you mentioned this morning before we began our conversation here. But more broadly, what are you seeing as we close out 2023 for ransomware? Ransomware actors are getting bolder. You know, that we saw in the last few weeks We saw the attack against ICBC, the International Commerce Bank of China. And a lot of people were shocked. They're like, uh, you know, ransomware actors don't hit banks. I'm like, no, no, ransomware actors hit banks all the time. Banks just mostly have the protections in place to limit the scope of the attack. So it doesn't turn into what it turned into ICBC. We saw that there has, uh, over the weekend, there was a ransomware attack against the power company in Slovenia. I mean, that's a huge going after critical infrastructure like that is a huge step up for some of these ransomware actors. But that is what we're continuing to see. And it's even reflected in the increase in ransomware attacks against healthcare providers. There are no protections anymore. You know, there was for a while some ransomware actors were like, no, we won't go after hospitals or we won't do this or we won't do that. Those protections all seem to have flown out the window And they'll go after anything and anyone that will make them money. It doesn't matter how small they are or how big they are. You know, I mean, we've seen ransomware actors go after food banks. Like, you're not going to get a ransom from a food bank. Don't do that. (laughs) You know, and, and so the fact that so many of the core ransomware operators are based in Russia and clearly feel like there are no repercussions. And I know we talked about this last time is emboldening them to keep carrying on attacks, but it's also bringing up all of the affiliates and all of the initial access brokers and all the groups that support them. It's bringing them and making them more bold in in who they'll go after in attacks. And, and, uh, you know, Scattered Spider is a great example of that. We are pretty confident that Scattered Spider is Western-based, I know some people have specifically said they're based in London and New York, but I don't know that we have evidence of that. But they are at least Western-based, and they are native or near-native English speakers, which is why they're able to so successfully pull off these social engineering attacks. And when you and I were younger and we had this hacker culture that we were in, it was, okay, let's figure out how to break things. Let's figure out how to do things and, and so on. There's a younger Western hacker culture movement that idolizes the ransomware groups, kind of like in the, you know, back in the day where you had the kids who idolized the gunslingers or that idolized the mafia. And I totally get it. 
I'm a ransomware researcher and I drive a Subaru and the ransomware <laughs> actors are all driving around in Lamborghinis. If I were a dumb 20 year old, I'd like the, the Lamborghini guy too. <laughs> I, this is so, uh, it's so fitting. I, I am a, whatever I am, right? A cybersecurity researcher or a podcast host or a privacy advocate, whatever I am, I am that at Mauerbytes. And I also drive a Subaru. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, and, uh, you know, I think it's pretty cool. But of course I would say that. I own it. I drive it. And you, I completely understand, like you said, there's this allure. There's this allure to, to doing bad things. You know, there's no other way around it. There's the allure. There's the coolness. There's the fact that I think it was money launderers for Klopp, I believe, were arrested and in like an arrest video that was made, they impounded a Tesla and like a very nice Lexus and like this other one. And these weren't even affiliates, you know, they weren't even the groups that carried out the ransomware attack. They were, I believe, allegedly money launderers, which is <laughs> just, it's not even the big bucks, you know, and they're still doing things that we can't. So I get it. I understand it. I wanted to go back to it, um, even though we kind of answer that question on the last podcast that was a while ago with this boldness that's coming about what stops them particularly right with scattered spider if we know that they're operating in the west that feels like something that we could do something about you know in the way that groups that are in russia we just have no reach into it and then the russian government turns a blind eye to it but i mean if it's in our yard what can we do Absolutely. You know, if Scatter Spider are in fact Western based, they will be arrested, but law enforcement takes time. And I mean, we, again, we saw this with lapses going back to them. It, they got to operate for a year with seeming impunity, and then law enforcement came down on them and came down on them hard. Even though a few of them were under 18, they still got pretty hefty sentences. And the same thing will happen to Scattered Spider. But it takes a while for law enforcement to build a case. You know, we're, we're all used to law and order or Perry Mason, you know, depending on how old you are, where, <laughs> where you know, they, 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 the crime happens and then they go out and arrest them immediately. It doesn't work that way, unfortunately, and especially not with cyber crimes. They will face punishment, but it doesn't feel like it to them because they've been able to carry out all these attacks. And look, nobody can touch me. They will. They, you're not that good. You may think you are, but you really, really aren't that good. And I think that's the frustrating part is just the time that it takes to actually go through the law enforcement process. And this applies to affiliates and to initial access brokers that live outside of Russia. They will eventually be arrested. It just takes a long time for law enforcement to gather the intelligence, get the arrest warrant, you know, build the case, get the warrants. And then if they're outside of the U.S. or the U.K., get those legal jurisdictions sorted out and then, you know, carry out the arrests. As we hit 2024, right, every like December, uh, we always like rack our brains about like, what's the prediction for next year? And the prediction I feel every single year for cybersecurity is like more and worse. Um, <laughs> there's going to be more attacks. They're going to be worse. If there's not more attacks, the fewer attacks will be worse. If there's not worse attacks, those banal attacks will be more. I've never seen our numbers go down. Um, so the question here is for 2024, I think specifically, right? We've spoken a lot about 
how things are getting bolder, how attacks are happening, how there's new extortion methods. What should potential victims simply know about starting the new year correctly? Did we talk about Bruce Lee in our last interview? We did not, and this is a perfect time to do it. I, it could be anything, and I am so ready already about this. Okay. <laughs> um, so tell me more. Uh, so I grew up watching 70s kung fu movies, and Bruce Lee, one of my favorite, Jackie Chan, love him. And there's always that one scene in any 70s kung fu movie or 80s kung fu movie or 90s or 2000s kung fu movie <laughs> where the good guy has to face seven bad guys at once, right? <laughs> and you've got to, a brilliant choreography for Bruce Lee or Jackie Chan taking on those guys and making it feel like you know he's fighting them all at the same time, even though generally he isn't. Yeah. <laughs> that is where you have to be if you are a defender now. Just looking at ransomware, right now we have initial access brokers that are carrying out phishing attacks, that are doing mass exploitation campaigns, that are getting in through third party, that are getting in through social engineering attacks, right? There's like seven different methods of initial access that just the ransomware initial access brokers are carrying out right now as we speak. And there are hundreds of them around the world looking for any target that they can go after. And then you have the BEC people doing the same thing. And you have the information stealers doing the same thing. So you really have to have that Bruce Lee mindset of you can't just say, okay, I'm going to worry about phishing this week. And then next month, I'll work on my social engineering campaigns. They're all happening simultaneously. You need to think about how you can better protect your organization against all of those. And that's a terrible way to have to spend your life, but it's just the reality of where we live right now. We've asked a lot of folks, you know, what's a takeaway? What's the one piece of advice? What's this? What's that? Be like Bruce Lee is probably the best one we've had. Um, oh, thank you. However, I will say that after the show, perhaps I will have taken the wrong idea. And then maybe when we speak again six months, a year from now, I will say, hey, look, I did it. I, I took martial arts lessons um, and, uh, and I got hit with ransomware. Um, that is all I had for today, Alan. Thank you again for coming on today's show. Oh, thank you. And I will say if you take martial arts lessons, maybe don't try to go for the drunken master belt, whatever one that is, because that's definitely not going to help you with your soft work. Um. <laughs> that's great. Alan, again, thank you so much for coming on today's show. And to our listeners at home, we will talk to you again in two weeks. Until then, stay tuned and stay safe. And remember, you can read all our cybersecurity coverage on Malwarebytes Labs at malwarebytes.com slash blog. Finally, our intro music is by Kevin MacLeod from incompetech.com. And our outro music is by Woa from unminus.com. Today's show has been edited by our podcast consultant, Eric Johnson at lightningpod.fm. Thank you, folks.